Well, I, I think one of the, you know, core tenets of, of design thinking is bringing in that empathy or that sort of general understanding of the problem space. You know, when you're in a business, you're constantly executing, you're constantly trying to hit goals and delivery. And, and so, um, you know, if you're in your family and you're doing things, obviously life goes and you have to plan things and whatnot, but there's more space to just be, exist, sort of feel. And, and so I think there's this like struggle when you have product goals and timelines and delivery, a product marketer is sort of struggling with this sentiment of the, the end customer, like they're complex, they're, there's behaviors, there's sort of emotional parts. It's how do you, how do you operate in that kind of space that uh, re requires trying to understand the customer from maybe a slightly different perspective. And I think that's where design thinking can really help uh, enable sort of awareness in the org to help slow down things or at least try to create space for, you know, understanding more than just the sort of nuts and bolts of what's needed as a list of things that there's emotional components to products and services that people, um, you know, may not need directly from the product, but will gain because the product exists in their life to enable something, right? And Welcome to the Product Marketing Life podcast, brought to you by the Product Marketing Alliance and hosted by me, Mark Cassini product marketing manager at Jopper. Every two weeks, I pull insights from some of the world's most talented product marketers to uncover the secret sauce of successful product marketing. In this episode, I'm joined by Brian Chmielewski, president and owner of Zerp. Brian is a design transformation leader committed to exploring the behaviors and routines of exceptional creative leaders. He has served as a trusted advisor to more than a thousand executives, including CEOs who seek the value of leading a design-driven organization. Today, Brian and the team at Zerb, a product design company, are on a mission to help their customers get answers to their product, design, and marketing questions via their newest solution, Helio. Helio lets you test prototypes, marketing ideas, and design concepts with ease, while also gleaning insights from a targeted audience in minutes. During our chat, Brian and I explore what product marketers stand to gain from getting closer to their customers. Now, you might think that most product marketers already know the benefits of connecting with their customers, but Brian's approach of looking at research through the lens of design thinking is a fresh take on what a lot of product marketers might take for granted. All right, with that out of the way, let's dive in. Hey, Brian, how's it going? Uh, good, good. Excited to chat with you today. Likewise, excited to have you on the show. Well, let's get into it then. I think it'd be great if you could walk me through your career so far and what led you to founding Zerb. Yeah, yeah. I uh, uh, started in product design uh, at Stanford and uh, spent uh, four years working in uh, developing ideas and need finding. And uh, Zerb uh, started with the idea that we could help companies uh, figure out their product design problems. At the time, um, UX wasn't really a thing. There was no idea behind UX. And our goal was to build products that were more user-centric and figured out how to support um, user flows and things that people are doing. You know, back in 98, people were doing brochurewares and, you know, websites were sort of like these interactive web pages. And so we were already getting into more heavier application development. And so that um, really taught us a lot about uh, a web environment, trying to figure out how to build complex things with groups of people. Uh, and as we uh, evolved, uh, we've done a number of products and uh, a recent uh, product is, is Helio. And uh, that really is about speeding up the need finding and your product development by connecting you to audiences and getting quicker, faster feedback on the things you'd be working on. Could be anything from messaging or um, an application or anything like that that requires creative thought, but also collaboration with your internal team and trying to figure out like how are users behaving or, or learning from something. 
Very cool. Yeah. And we'll get deeper into that subject of customer feedback uh, in a lot more detail in the kind of preceding or following questions here. But before we get into the meat of the conversation, you know, in going through your, your profiling experiences, I'm sure you've probably gotten this a lot, but one thing that really stood out was your time as a toy inventor. So, right, you know, right. I'm curious, were there any lessons or experiences, you know, from your time as a toy designer at Skyline and then um, IDEO that you used to guide your day-to-day as a founder today? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, Skyline I started with was just, just a small startup and we were acquired by IDEO. Um, some of your audience might know IDEO, uh, IDEO and they, um, you know, as a consulting firm have kind of productionalized uh, design thinking as a service offering in a way that uh, supports uh, businesses and competing and, and sort of business management with those ideas. Uh, they really started as a product company and, um, our goal was to uh, figure out with Skyline how to sell toy ideas. And those toy ideas started from basically nothing. We came up with like uh, ideas, uh, watching, observing kids, you know, going down store aisles, seeing how we could take technology in one area and then try to reapply it and, and others. And so um, that uh, overlapped with design thinking in a way that was uh, more of the zero state or the conceptual ideas. Uh, and IDEO had a, a more uh, developed process. And so they they married the two two businesses and stayed focused on what they called zero to 20 practice of, of younger kids. What I learned in uh, working at Skyline as a sort of my first job is kind of crazy. A toy inventor is a first job. Um, was that ideas are sort of these like things that sort of bounce around. They're very, uh, you know, there's no such thing as this idea that you just have an idea and then you execute it on a business. Like when you're in sort of school, you're learning about how to make things and how businesses work and it's all theoretical. And, and it's sort of, you think like, Oh, it's just this a linear progression of things. And what you realize is that everything has this sort of like very temporal feel and it, it could die or, or live. And, uh, you know, when you're starting out with an idea, it could be quashed by but someone's bad day. Uh, some kid didn't like it. Uh, a buyer thought it was, you know, dumb. But then the next buyer, like, you know, spent a million dollars on it. So it's this kind of weird conceptual thing that you don't realize, like, how sensitive things are. There's, um, you know, an idea that you're trying to, like, figure out how to get a market fit with. Uh, but there's so many different parts of that. It, it, you know, there's, like... A lot of times it would be like pricing, like how does it fit in Target's top shelf in you know thirty two cents of plastic? And you're like, well, what does that have to do with fun? <laughs> like, but you realize like all of these things play into whether or not idea can live, and and so there's a whole string of people along a continuum that play a factor in making that idea come to life. And so I what I really learned in that first job is that the complexities of of taking this little like you know, little idea and, and turning it into something that has, it's like, it's like a minnow trying to survive like in this big ocean and then trying to figure out how does it do that. And and there's so many places for it to go wrong. Even if you had right fit, right things, like there's so many things that could just destroy the idea. So I learned early on is, you know, not to be too sacred about ideas and that, you know, let the ideas uh, sort of emerge and unfold with groups of people. And, and the, the people become so much more important to the whole idea, not just the sort of concept or idea. Yeah. I, I find that so incredibly fascinating. I think as, as product marketers, we're used to having to workshop ideas and have things, you know, really land with our customers and other things fall flat. And I can only imagine how much more devastating that must feel when you're developing 
you know, physical good for a toy and to see them take zero interest in it or toss to the side and walk away. And you're like, damn, I spent months working on that. Oh yeah. Yeah. Just toss it aside. Yeah, no, that, that's uh so uh, another interesting component of this is that you've got multiple buyers, like you've got the end user and and then you've got the buyer of the idea. And then, and then you have a customer that's making things as well, like on the engineering side. So there's, there's like a string of people. The, the, the most fascinating thing I learned in this was that, um, we actually had a toy uh, group that was a feedback session. And so we would bring kids in to test ideas to see, you know, are they good? Are they bad? You know, are they enjoying it? Get some honest feedback. You know, every product marketer is told, Hey, go talk to your, your end users and figure this out. What was kind of funny about the whole thing is that we had a hard time getting people to consistently show up because the customer uh, in this case was the parent that then had the kid and the kid, you know, was obviously the one that was going to play with the toy. Um, they know they did a lot of no shows because it was just sort of this activity in which uh, it was, the, you know, there was uh, no, no reason to show up. Uh, you know, there wasn't something binding. And so we figured out we would charge people to come in uh, and it totally <laughs> changed the percentage of people that would show up being charged to be part of the group. So it totally changed my whole perspective on feedback of where the value is. And so, you know, we were able to turn it into something that the parents thought, okay, I can't not have my kids show up in this. I'm going to pay for this sort of event to do toys. And so um, what I learned in that process was that, you know, uh, feedback is valuable and you can make it part of the whole experience. It's not like this thing that's like, taking from someone it's it's part of the overall experience and so um you know product marketers there's mutual benefit to be earned by trying to have events and talking to people and trying to encourage uh fluid uh flow of information just trying to learn and and the fact that we could charge someone for that just blew my mind that that would uh <laughs> that would actually work yeah that's so incredibly counterintuitive because you know i've spent many a time in waiting rooms, waiting for customers to show up on zoom calls and then no show. And yeah, so I, I know that feeling all too well. And, you know, it's interesting you say that because again, I think oftentimes as product marketers, we assume that really when we're doing those demos or we're showing, you know, products that are still in development, all the value is being gained by us. We're getting the insights, we're getting the feedback, but I think taking this perspective of, you know what, if the customer is really in your core demographic, there's a benefit to them to see how this tool can help them solve their problems, right? And obviously that's the core of what we ultimately bring to market is that messaging, that positioning. But I think even framing the feedback session around that, I think is also cool as well. I think whether you're a product marketer or you're a product manager or a founder, you're just so desperate for that feedback that you're almost begging people to participate, but yeah. almost positioning it as this like, hey, you're gonna get to spend half an hour with this really cool thing that we've been working on that's gonna help you in these ways. Like we're we only have so many spots. Are you in? Cause if right. you don't show up, if you don't show up or if you don't say us soon, we're going to move on to the next interested participant. I think that's a, it takes a, a different a, mindset to do it that way, you know? And, and that's the, the challenge is, is that, uh, it does take effort, right? But you have to think of the effort is, is mutually beneficial to both parties and that you're going to get more authentic feedback and participate. There is a bias that gets introduced there, but I think the, the sort of, thinking about it in terms that there is a reason why someone wants to show up there and, and sort of tapping into that can be extremely valuable. Um, and it does take a little planning and exercise and it's just like any kind of show or where you'd be putting on, 
you, you have to think about what are all the ingredients? Why, why would fun, someone find this interesting? What, what are they there for? What are they trying to gain out of it? And I think, you know, if we put more time into it, almost productizing the feedback in a way that supports the business goals, it makes it easier, I think, to, to sort of conceptualize what that is, you know, and, and that's anything from the first five minutes of the interview and sort of where you're going with it, the context that you can give to people, the sort of ecosystem that can come around, you know, sharing of information. Yeah, 100%. I love that framing. I'm curious, before we shift on to our, our main topic, I just wanted to ask you one more thing about the the toy aspect of it all. Yeah. What were some of the kind of similarities or differences that you found in getting feedback from customers on the physical tangible good versus transitioning into a software, something that an individual can't hold in their hands and interact with outside of their keyboard or their mouse? Um, what is it about that dynamic that maybe changed the way feedback is provided or, or gathered? Did it at all? Was the dynamic different? Curious, you know, what that shift is like and kind of where that overlap exists if there was any. Yeah. Um, well, when I was in Toy Man, mentioned we were at the zero state, which basically, you know, it's all conceptual. There is no sort of um, uh, uh, engineering plan at that stage, right? And so we would sell some stuff, you know, 50K off of just a sketch. And so that blew my mind as well that, you know, a sketch could create that much awareness of what the actual opportunity was. And so I really started to think about how sketching fits into selling of ideas and conceptualizing things and getting co-participation into things. So that's one space that doesn't even have to do with the physical product. It's, it's, there's a conceptual space that can be established with groups of people and there's value there if you can do it right and you can sell that vision. Some of it is repetition of being able to be, it's a communication channel. So just like I'm talking to you, people feel familiar doing deals based on just talking about something. Uh, a lot of people get familiar in that world based on concepts or your ability to execute on an idea that is is conceptual. Uh, within the toy world, obviously, there's feedback loops that happen downstream, and that production cycle could be six months to a year, and there's prototypes. And so you want to mitigate the risk of kind of going all in. And so a lot of those ideas were licensed, and a percentage of revenue is gained. And so that could create sort of these gates where we would license something, they would hold it for a certain amount of time and then kill a deal. Obviously they were out part of that money, but then we would get the idea again and then sort of be able to do something again with uh, another company. And sometimes that didn't, you know, companies didn't know what was happening behind the scenes there. Cause once you license it, they couldn't really talk about the fact that when they canceled it, that they were working on something. So that that's another unique part of the idea that you can, um, sort of put gates in as you go down a continuum and when you have like, you know, products where there's heavy tooling and stuff like that, obviously toys was a little less than say like some products just because plastic and oftentimes they want to do fabric or things with fabric because that, you know, sewing and stuff, labor costs were, were cheaper. Um, once you got to the web, what I realized in the feedback loop was it was like a zero sum game. So the idea that you could get feedback instantly like totally blew my mind. It's like you could put it up and it was like ready for feedback. Like there was no time in between like making something and getting the feedback. So then I realized, okay, design thinking as a, as an idea was super helpful, but oftentimes I think sometimes people real, don't realize this design thinking was, it was really created for product, like physical product. And since it was mitigating the risk of long product development cycles, obviously there's need finding and empathy and those things, uh, but when you have a web environment where zero, like you can do this real time, 
now you can bring different methods to the table that enable you to get that feedback faster and sooner rather than waiting in cycles to sort of come up with a, a hypothesis and go through this. Sometimes you can just throw things at the at the board and see what happens uh, just without a whole lot of strategic thinking. You can just sort of be in a creative mindset and be able to put stuff online. And you know, that's the cool thing about the web. You get all these pockets of the web where people are doing this without any commercial intent and you see they do all these crazy wild things and it's it's you know, fun and liberating and exciting. Uh, so there's something in that where I think businesses can learn from that, right? Where there's not always strategic planning behind anything, even like innovation labs, you don't necessarily need always structured thinking behind what you put out there because the feedback can happen so quickly. I think the the hard part for most companies in the online world is that they're really nervous about what people think about what that feedback might be. <laughs> and so you know, if we look at that sort of continuum of like thinking conceptually and just being able to sell ideas, like you can get feedback extremely fast just in person or or, or, or getting um, that that uh, instant sort of emotional sort of gauge by just putting a concept together real quick. Uh, it doesn't even have to be finalized. You can, and I've had the experience of selling that, right? And that production can kind of slow things up and, and really, um, you know, maybe limit people's ability to take risk and and trying to get that feedback uh, as they go through a production cycle. And then the web just makes it so much easy to get this feedback that um, I think that is the problem is that people don't know what to do with that feedback, especially if it's negative and they have sort of some uh, hesitancy of trying to do something that the company would like get that negative feedback, right? As an individual, it's if, if I put something out and like, it's not good. And then it comes back to my company. I'm like, Oh, do I, I don't know if I want to do that. So, you know, I think that's where we are today is that you've got this opportunity uh, where the tools, the the things you can collect is, is basically makes the process really seamless. And, but the issue is like, how do you process it and how do you sell it and how do you internalize it and what do you do with it? So. Yeah. And I think just to double down on that piece of what, what do you do with it? I know in my career, I've made mistakes many times around, needing a question to be answered and just defaulting to, oh, we'll just send a survey out, right? Like surveys are easy. They take two seconds to, to write with most survey yeah. uh, tooling these days. And then you get the data back and you're like, okay, well now what do I, what do I do with this? Cause you didn't think thoughtfully about what you're going to do with the feedback. Once you got it, you just knew you had a question you want answered. Um, so I think this idea of, you know, while the web and these tools have made feedback immediately accessible, it also created this problem of, so much information, what do you do with it? And even good information, what do you do with it? Like what's, what's and the if it's game negative? What, yeah. what if it's negative? Like, what do I do with it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Who do I show this to? How do I act on it? Right. Um, the, the one thing that you touched on at the very beginning that I think was really insightful as well was this idea of, you know, showing a concept and having it sell. And I think, again, because it's so easy nowadays to show off wireframes or a quick demo, like there's tools where you can create interactive demos in minutes. Um, which is great for a lot of reasons, but I think also at the same time, it kind of, I don't know what the right word is, but it shields you from being forced to sell just the idea. And I know that I've, you know, product marketing, because it's an ex an exploding field, there's always new software popping up being sold to product marketers. And anytime that I've been sold to, I have found that the tools that tend to be most effective can be explained to me through a conversation as opposed to being shown to me and explained at the same time. And I think that's a skill that a lot of product marketers and a lot of founders need to develop because if you can't sell your idea without having to default to just showing pictures, mm -hmm. you're going to have a hard time 
selling more broadly, right? Um, right? So that's a skill that I think a lot of product marketers need to need to develop. And I know whenever we do positioning and messaging testing, that's why I love about positioning and messaging testing is like you're not showing them pictures, you're you're talking through words and you're talking through statements and you're forcing the customer to really digest it and provide feedback on that position as an as an idea and a concept. Um, right. I find that to be a much more challenging, albeit fruitful exercise than just showing a potential feature and saying, this is what it's going to look like. What do you think? Right. Right. Well, one, one technique we actually do is blend that world and that fonts actually have an impact on how people perceive uh, text. And so we sometimes just take headlines and screenshots of text because it has, you know, how it wraps, how the, the size of a subcopy and like, you can learn a lot and how people perceive it. And we, we figured out a lot just with how you use a font with text. It's so rich. There's so much you can do just with that to get feedback and and see how people's opinions and sentiment change based on how you present just text. Yeah, it's, it's fast. Yeah. 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 You know, I, uh, I'm the kind of person who likes things to look well positioned and well structured. And I know that I've worked with individuals in the past, especially when doing, for example, just selling the idea of, uh, of an internal presentation. Um, I've had people leaders say, oh, well, I don't care what it looks like. Just get something out. We'll talk through it internally. We'll go. And I always are on the side of like, I'm the kind of person where the more care and thought that is put into the presentation, the more likely I am to believe in the idea or buy into it. And it's this idea of tying that, like you said, like the concept um, to how it is visually represented can have a real impact on the response to it. Um, so that's something that, uh, yeah. you know, I know we've had many internal debate throughout my career, but like, well, Who's this for? Is it just for someone internally? We'll just put a couple sides together. Who cares what it looks like? And I'm always on the side of like, no, I'm going to actually invest the time here because it's. I think it's going to help sell the idea better. Well, that, that that's to your point. Sometimes when you invest, you're like, crap, who's this actually for? Like, <laughs> why am I going to this detail? Because you realize that maybe these ideas don't hold up. They don't have uh, weight. And then you sit with them a little bit more trying to take the idea and put it into a structure. And you realize, oh, wait, there isn't anything here. It's 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 bare. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That thinking Great. time sometimes can be super helpful. Oh, hundred percent. All right. Well, we've already touched on the, again, the, the kind of core of our conversation already, but let's go a little bit deeper. You know, you lean into this idea of the customer gap that many companies suffer from or oftentimes struggle with. So in your words, what is that gap and how can those same companies close it to connect more with their customers? Yeah. So I look at it as, you know, pre-industrial revolution, you, 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 you went, into your little studio, you made your crafts, you figured out you know, how to make something, and then you went out on the street and then you tried to sell them. And it was a pretty simple process. You know, you had uh, making and then you then you tried to sell and you learned that if you make something in ways that people don't like, it didn't sell. And so that feedback loop is really, uh, as a creator, small. And so you see that in Twitter and a lot of these online platforms where people are creating something and they're putting it out there and they get the feedback and they you know, they get a loop and there's a lot of small companies where they can perform pretty well because they have this feedback loop that's pretty close to their customer. As you start getting to sort of larger systems and bigger uh, types of products, you you, you get say, uh, well, there's a manufacturing process that needs to happen that goes outside the skills of whoever conceptualized the idea. Then you've got, you know, on top of that, now you've got uh, packaging of that within a website that then has, uh, someone putting layers of HTML and CSS, and then you have 
someone with a marketing plan that uh, has some idea of what it's going to look like in colors. And then you have a product marketer that sits in there trying to discombobulate what the product is with the, the marketing vision. And now all of a sudden you've got a whole string of people that are trying to bring this product to life. And what happens is that um, great things can happen and the level of execution can go up and people's expertise can create great things. You can quickly get disconnected from the end customer in ways that don't give you that visceral feedback of showing up at 8 a.m. on the street corner and not getting a sale, right? And so it oftentimes can slow a process up of learning about whether a product is good or bad, or is it have legs in the market or not, because there's just so much distance between the organization as a whole. If you look at the sum total of people trying to make it and the end customer who's trying to just get value out of this, this object or service or product. Right. And so the internet has actually probably caused this to expand at the same time it shrinks in some uh, disciplines. Right. Oh, absolutely. And I think, what I have seen when I've experienced firsthand at various stages of my career is that once you reach a certain scales of business, it's, it's oftentimes the needs of the business can sometimes outweigh the needs of the customer because it's perceived that getting that customer feedback is harder or not as important as what the business needs to survive or move forward. And I think product marketing's regular struggle is saying to those internal teams, like you said, whether it's product development as a proxy for manufacturing or the web design team or the broader marketing org, like, Hey, I know this might look good and we need to do this to hit these metrics. But at the end of the day, if we can't sell the value to the customer or solve a real customer problem with whatever we're doing, should we really be doing it? And I know it's a balance and there's no right answer to say, oh, well, you know, 40% of your time should be, you know, business initiative focus and 60% should be customer and vice versa. But there needs to be some semblance of balance or at least not a total, as you alluded to, disconnect from your customers. Um, right. So yeah, really important for product marketers to keep that at, at the forefront. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it, uh, you know, just the, like, again, that microcosm, you can get feedback instantly, right? I mean, this is zero sum game, right? So this creates this complexity of like, you can get the feedback, but then yeah, how do you connect it to all these moving parts in ways that create any kind of a semblance of a rational plan, right? That is the, the difficult part here of synthesizing it and trying to say, hey, as a group of people, we should do this or shouldn't do this in ways that, um, you know, create momentum and get people motivated to, to deliver on a quality product. Uh, just because you have 10 experts that are like, have amazing skills and whatnot, it doesn't, it doesn't mean you can put together a, a souffle at the end that people actually want to eat. So, yeah. Yeah. And it's a lot easier to get those 10 people in a room or in a zoom call and hash things out than it is to go out and talk to a hundred, a thousand customers, however you might need to feel confident in that decision. So I think that's oftentimes why a lot of individuals just default to, well, we internally feel good about this. So we're just going to do it uh, without really vetting that against what the customer is actually wanting in that given time or how they're going to react to that decision. Yes, absolutely. And I'm guilty of this too. This is a, this is like something you, you can't isolate yourself from and say, well, no, I have this process that helps me with it. Every process will be forced to acknowledge the hard parts of this. And it could be your internal struggle of collaboration. It doesn't matter. It, it's a, it's a, it's a game that's played every day that you have to understand that it's, it doesn't stop it no matter how good your process is. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and on this topic of process and this, you know, movement that never stops, you mentioned earlier this idea of design thinking, and it's been around for some time. Obviously, like you said, it was primarily adopted by those designing physical goods, but I think yeah. with the software, you know, kind of explosion over the last couple of decades has really been embraced by a lot of product development and product management teams. 
So yeah. accepting that, how do you think product marketers should benefit from adopting either that same approach or a similar approach um, with their product counterparts? Well, I, I think one of the you know core tenets of, of design thinking is bringing in that empathy or that sort of general understanding of the problem space. You know, when you're in a business, you're constantly executing. You're constantly trying to hit goals and delivery, and and so, um, you know, if you're in your family and you're doing things, obviously life goes and you have to plan things and whatnot. But there's more space to just be, exist, sort of feel, and and so I think there's this like struggle when you have product goals and timelines and delivery. A product marketer is sort of struggling with this sentiment of the the end customer. Like they're complex. There there's behaviors. There's sort of emotional parts. It's how do you how do you operate in that kind of space that uh, requires trying to understand the customer from maybe a slightly different perspective. And I think that's where design thinking can really help uh, enable sort of awareness in the org to help slow down things, or at least try to create space for, you know, understanding more than just the sort of nuts and bolts of what's needed as a list of things that there's emotional components to products and services that people, um, you know, may not need directly from the product, but will gain because the product exists in their life to enable something, right? And um, I think that is one important part of, of design thinking that can be sort of pull, pulled out and, and used in a way that product marketers um, can at least sell internally to the business, say, hey, no, we, we need to kind of figure this piece of that equation out. Um, I don't know, in your experience, you know, you're in a uh, more technical and and probably less touchy feely uh, business yourself like but it doesn't matter what the software is at a certain point like people get emotional whether it's it's you know the way the button is or whatnot i don't know but yeah you could probably speak to this this piece a little bit um yeah how do you bring empathy into a, a b2b product and understand yeah. uh, these problems yeah it's definitely a challenge. And I was, it's funny you asked me that because I was going to flip that question back to you after, which I will do still do, but bear with me as I answer your question first. You know, I, I think where I am today at Java, I'm fortunate that because we're less so focused on enterprise solutions, we're more focused on, you know, entrepreneurs, small, medium-sized businesses. Where at the end of the day, there's an individual using our product that is running a business that might be just for themselves and they're supporting themselves or their family, or they're yep. supporting a team of individuals. And to your point, Something as simple as, hey, I have to click this button a thousand times at the end of every month because I need to send out invoices. And that's a real pain for me because I don't have the time to do that. And that's time I could be spending with my kids or with my partner or just doing something that's not business related for myself. It's easier and we're more fortunate in our space to, to have those conversations with our customers and connect with them. And uh, again, we're fortunate where we are at Jobber that you know, for those of us who you know own homes or even have contractors come over to rentals or home service providers, I should say, we can have those conversations with them and see where they're struggling with the software or just struggling with their day-to-day -day in general. Um, so we're lucky, but you're right. Like not everybody is that fortunate. Because I, I always think about, and God bless the people that work in kind of the data and security side of software. I, 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 I find that field so dense of a topic that like I would struggle to build empathy with a customer because I just don't understand it. And maybe that's just my own um, lack of knowledge there, but we are lucky at Jobber that we can actually connect and, and kind of, experience firsthand what our customers go through. Um, so whether that's through, again, having them come over, doing a ride along or having a phone call, we're, we're lucky in that sense. But yeah. as I said, I want to kind of flip that back to you, given your experiences and what you've seen, 
How do you find that whether it's a product manager or a product marketing manager or a founder can can build that empathy? Are there are there certain ways or practices or tools that you've seen really work to to put those individuals in the shoes of their customers more effectively than other methods? Well, um, yeah, I mean, if I was to start as a, as a sort of a baseline of this conversation, I think, uh, especially in B2B sales, but, but oftentimes in online products and whatnot, I, I feel, um, listening and feedback is a great tool to be able to sell, uh, and being able to empathize starts with listening and talking to people. This is where I think salespeople are actually have a leg up oftentimes on the business because this is their domain. They have to be on the emotional content side. I also find that's problematic though, too, because as product marketing and, and product, uh, we should be talking to the customers a lot more. And oftentimes sales becomes a gatekeeper there because they're worried about their business relationship, obviously, because the end goal is to sell. But um, I think many businesses struggle with this idea that there should be a fluid flow between you know, sales having responsibility and building uh, you know, research capacity or, or, or something where the end goal isn't necessarily to sell, but it's to make sure the long-term benefits of the product are being met by the customer in ways that go beyond just the sale to, to deeper into the sort of problem space or whatever it might be, right? What does it look like six months in? What does it look like a year? You know, you have renewing contracts and stuff like that. And so it feels like, you know, part of that needs to be established in the organization to try and create those feedback loops and be able to share ownership of the customer um, in ways that I think many businesses are just reticent to do. They just uh, struggle with this idea. Um, and what I would say is the basis of this is it's just uh, feedback isn't a bad thing, even if it's negative. In fact, I find the negative feedback sometimes is the most helpful at establishing a good relationship, correcting a pathway, creating a sort of organizational understanding within it. And so it's funny sometimes the businesses just try to stop that, <laughs> right? Uh, when, when really that is sort of the basis, I think, of building that empathy, the design thinking and trying to figure this out. If if the top of the funnel where the sales is happening, we have that open sort of dialogue happening. Um, I think products and services will benefit uh, from that, but it's just not, it, it's not a, it's not a thing in most businesses. Oh, and, and, and you're right. And I think tools like, you know, Gong, for example, or any, you know, a solution that allows you to listen to sales calls has almost made it so much easier for product managers and product marketers to default to not embedding themselves in the conversation because the reaction is, well, I'll just listen to the gone calls. That's that's good enough. Yeah. And while there's still a lot of learning to be listened or to, to be gleaned from listening to those conversations, I don't think there's any replacement for actually activate, actively participating in them um, or at least actively listening while that conversation is going right. and you know figuring it out with the sales rep at the same time of what should we be asking about? Oh, can you dig a bit deeper here? So uh, I always recommend um, for product marketers, especially starting out, if you can spend time with your sales team. I know obviously we live in a very remote world these days, so it's not as easy as just going over, pulling up a chair and sitting next to them. But if you can join a, a Zoom call and you can just listen in and chat with the salesperson as they're talking or in a way that's not distracting, of course, to, to kind of guide the conversation or ask questions, I find that incredibly beneficial. Or if you can spend time in sales yourself. I mean, I, I after graduating, spent some time in a sales-like role of recruitment for post-secondary education. So it's slightly different. It wasn't hard selling much as um, educating, um, but there was still an element of having to, to sell the school and to pitch the benefits of coming. And I learned a ton from that experience that I still use in my career today, whether it's just 
having conversations like we're having right now in the podcast form or talking to customers that had I not had that experience, I think my strength and skills or product marketing would have been greatly diminished. So I, you know, I think sometimes sales can be seen as something that's scary and, and terrifying. And it is, it is, it is for sure at times, but it's not something that a product marketer should be so terrified or turned away from that. They, they actively shut themselves away from it. If, if they can pursue an opportunity there, I, I always highly recommend. I think if, if both parties can understand that feedback is valuable, and this goes back to my original sort of, uh, a highlight that I was saying is that people will pay you to give you feedback. If you look at sales as an exercise of they're paying you to give their feedback, then there's a different way to look at feedback as an incredibly powerful, important part of the relationship building where uh, most people don't see it maybe like that. And I see it as the core sort of ingredient of the success, definitely on online products where, you know, the, you're a button away from clicking and telling people what you think. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so we'll move on here. And, you know, we talked about this idea of getting feedback and which kind of, I think, filters back up to research more broadly. So I'm curious, you know, if we think about just research in general and, and kind of building this this motion or this muscle around research as a product marketer, how have you seen or what advice do you have for product marketers who want to build this regular and ongoing research muscle or motion into their core workflows? Yeah, I think you have to think of it as like, you know, driving a manual car. There's there's different gears, first gear, second gear, third gear, fourth gear, and not everything is going to be the same, right? You've got one-to-ones where you can learn quite a bit and and one-to-a-few where it might be a joint email uh, with a group of, of uh, from a company. It could be uh, one-to-some, it could be like a hundred people, it could be one-to-like, you know, thousands of people. And so, hmm. The, the techniques you're using across these different channels will sort of need to change day in and day out, but you you need to put structure behind your engagements and how you're thinking about how you can build these relationships in these different capacities because your one-on-one might fit in a one-to-many role and, and how do you manage that sort of feedback loop across these different mechanisms. So an example being you might have a newsletter that's more of a sort of engagement and sharing of ideas and opening yourself up to like, what are your ideas? What are you going with things? And then you might have a, say, one, one-on-one Zoom with a customer. And that person might reply back to that newsletter after your one-on-one, right? And so how, how do we blend these worlds together so that they don't get lost in channels that don't create um, ultimate sort of value for the business in which you can sort of start thinking more holistically about what these um, you know channels can do for your feedback loops. I think it's really hard as a product manager to switch gears. Like, you know, the mechanics of putting together like an email that's going out to whatever, 10,000 people and sending a zoom link with like, here's my zoom link to connect Th- those that contact switching. It can be very difficult, but I think it's the, one of the most important parts of um you know, thinking like a product manager is being able to think about these different mindsets and being able to shift gears into collecting the types of feedback that can ultimately support your internal business. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And, and you know, one of the things that I think we, uh, or at least more recently, I have started to kind of push forward internally is this idea that, you know, product marketing and product management don't have to be the only drivers of research within an org. And we actually asked the question to ourselves literally a couple of days ago as a kind of core leadership group within the area of the business that I support at Jobber, how can we 
get closer to customers. And the question was was posed to me as a product marketing manager, seen as the person who you know is all about the voice of the customer. And I said, well, listen, I think it's of critical importance for us as a core leadership team to be as close to the customers as possible and to hold ourselves accountable to committing to saying, hey, every month, week, quarter, whatever it is, we are as individuals and as a group going to spend X amount of time with customers, whether it's having them come in and doing a kind of show and tell style, one to many, as you said, where the customer is the one and we are the many, whether it's us listening to calls with our sales reps, whether it's having interviews, sending out a survey, just but just setting that kind of commitment and structure and cadence is hugely important. And I also think holding the broader team accountable for some similar time commitment. I think, like I said, it's, it's very easy for product marketing and product management to be like, yes, I will be the face of the customer. I will do the research and present it to everybody. But I find you get much, not only broader sense of insights and more deeper insights by including the, the broader team, whether it's engineers, whether it's other marketing folk and in, in having those conversations with customers, but you get better buy-in and identification of that you know idea of empathy across the org so that when you then have to go sell an initiative to say, hey, for this quarter, we're going to focus on X, Y, Z, everybody's kind of already bought into it because they've heard it from customers themselves, why X, Y, Z is of a critical, critical importance to, to our customers and to us as a business. Um, so I just wanted to build off on, on your comment because I think that's something that I've, again, has been front and center for me literally over the past couple of days Absolutely. that I think other product marketers should try and focus on if they can. Yeah. One, one thing to build off of that is I think, you know, if you're product marketing and you've, you, you work closely with content marketing, one of the ideas is this distribution of content that you could take a piece of content and repurpose it across different channels and whatnot. Uh, I think the same holds true with feedback is that you can think about the same distribution strategy as you can take a single concept that you might be working on in the next three months and figure out these different mechanisms of both kind of selling feedback loops, one-on-ones and figuring out how do you build sort of awareness across the organization from the customer's perspective to try and drive those agendas. And I think that might be one of the hardest things of product marketer is to get people aligned towards these positioning and what the product is. But when you bring in these different customer perspectives, it becomes much easier to have the, conversation with VP, the CEO, the engineers, because everyone can start to empathize and understand the customer problem as you're trying to explain this positioning or what you're trying to do with it. Um, but I would I would say that starts with thinking of your feedback mechanism similar to content distribution as you have to think of all of your channels and utilize them to, to create some cohesive uh, sort of... Uh, I, I don't know what you want to call it, but uh, I, I hate the word research report of, of, of sort of user feedback, but cohesive uh, strategy that gives different perspectives and can really get groups of people in your organization rallying behind what you're trying to position in the market. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think what I like about that approach too is, you know, we obviously come with our own biases when we're having those conversations. So I might hear a customer talk about something and think, oh, wow, this should really inform X. And then an engineer might hear and think, oh, wow, like I think it should actually be the opposite or a different area that we should be focusing on based on that. And I think the more people you have listening to that feedback and applying their own biases and perspectives on it, the, the better identification of different areas you can play in and you can kind of pursue. And then it's up to the responsibility of you know the, the leadership team or whoever's kind of guiding the ship to say, hey, I hear all you guys, you've kind of consolidated all this, this research and we're going to go down this path or we're going to focus on this area because you know, we've all heard it. We may have all interpreted it in different ways, but this is what makes the most sense for our customers, for the business. And everyone can at least feel as though they were part of that journey. They might not necessarily agree with the destination, but at least they can feel that they somehow contributed to how that kind of roadmap was built or that Absolutely. kind of focus was established. Yeah. 
and, and, and having qual and quant is that sort of mixture to be able to put these perspectives in ways that work for different parts of the business, right? Engineering is going to be more rational and it's, it's set because it's got to create logic and logic needs sort of <laughs> can't be completely open-ended, right? It needs closed, uh, closed settings. And, uh, so that that's where quant can be your friend when you're doing this. So the mixture of both can be extremely valuable in, in rallying people behind what you're doing. Yeah, absolutely. And we didn't really get to touch on the quant side of things at all. And I'm sure we can have a whole nother episode, you and I together about diving into the quant side of, of feedback and, and research, but we'll save that for another day because we've arrived at our last question. And it's one that I've you know, asked to all my guests, so I'll pose it to you as well. Um, so what's an area of focus in the realm of product marketing that you think product marketers specifically will have to pay extra attention to this year, more so than in previous years? Uh, so I'm a fan of transcendentalism and I'll get a little <laughs> cranial for people, but I, I think dialectic thinking is incredibly important. So as a, as a country, we've gotten polarized in our perspectives and viewpoints. And I think uh, being able to maintain two uh, conceptual ideas together and and be able to rationalize how both of them can coexist in in some way is extremely valuable. So uh, trying to prevent this idea that it's this or it's that, um, but being able to hold perspectives and be able to sort of navigate that for a business because a business tends to want to make it super simple and and just say it's this or that, but but that's not how things are and life is complicated and so I, I think being able to be a voice of reason in a business to understand the complexities of, of positions and knowing that they're not always say what media makes you think or how industry reports on it, it it's not as easy as that, that they're selling eyeballs They're selling, you know, they're trying to make money. And so those things get lost because we think that our research, our ideas are, are, are going to be simple like that, but most people would realize now that's not the case. And so being able to hold both perspectives, uh, as you go through process and being able to help a business understand that is, uh, I think an incredibly important skill. Yeah, absolutely. And I think product marketers were so uniquely positioned because we sit at the center of so many different teams, whether it's product, whether it's sales, whether it's the broader marketing or whether it's success. And oftentimes those groups can have very differing opinions on what should or shouldn't be done in any given scenario. So I think you're absolutely right. Product marketers are, are, you know, need to be able to balance those and understand that those two opinions can exist um, together and navigate a path for, or at least come forward with a recommendation on how, you know, they can be navigated and, be considered together to make ultimately a good decision, or at least again, like present that those positions in a way that allows whoever ultimately has to make the decision um, feel as though they've made the right one after considering both sides or all four sides, depending on who's involved. Yeah. So it doesn't mean you advice. shouldn't be opinionated. It just means that, you know, you need to be able to take these things and rationalize the perspectives. And so that before jumping directly to an opinion or simply rubber stamping what the business wants, um, is being able to hold that tension and be able to help people navigate complex conversations. So I think, yeah, you can't go wrong with that in the next decade. If you have those skills, that's an important one to being successful in product marketing. Yeah. And it's, it's funny you say that. Cause I, I have this kind of belief that most product marketers are yes, people or they're, they're very good people pleasers. Sorry. That's the word I was looking for. Um, because we're, you know, in between so many teams and we want to do what's best for everybody at all times. And I think you said the word tension, I think is, is a good word to describe it. We have to get better as product marketers, especially if we are people pleasers. And this is me speaking as one at, at getting comfortable with that tension and being comfortable with that discomfort of uh, being in the middle of those opinions, having informing our own opinions, even if they might 
necessarily, or even if they might go against the loudest voice in the room or the most strongly held opinion. So I, I love that feedback because I think it's, you're right, it's not just applicable to where we are today, given, you know, internal and external politics, let's call them, and as they stand within businesses and outside of them, um, but not just now, but for the future. So I think that's fantastic advice. Awesome. Fantastic. Well, Ryan, this has been a great conversation. Like I said, I'm sure we could have a whole nother hour just talking on, again, d- diving in deeper here or even just shifting gears and focusing on the quant side of things. But I will let you go. And before I do, uh, I just want to give you the opportunity, you know, if anybody has listened to uh, our conversation today and feels as though they want to talk to you more about uh, whether it's design thinking, whether it's, you know, closing this idea of the customer gap or just research in general, or they want to talk to you more about Helio, uh, what's the best way for them to get in contact with you? Uh, they can get me at uh, z at zurb.com, z-u-r-b.com. And so my email uh, inbox is, is usually open to exchange ideas and happy to uh, respond to people. Um, I'm also on LinkedIn as well. So you can look me up, uh, enjoy spending time there as well. Awesome. Well, again, I can't thank you uh, enough for your time today, Brian. I really appreciate the insight you've provided. And uh, you know, I look forward to potentially having you on the show again in the future to dive into the topics we just didn't have time to uh, to discuss today. So thank you again. For everyone still tuned in, thanks so much for listening. And if you enjoyed the podcast, please help us spread the word to other product marketers. Before we leave you to get on with your day, if you want to get involved, here are a few ways you can. If you're a product marketer and want to come on the show and speak about your day, a specific topic, or your role in general, that's one option. If you want to flex your podcast hosting skills, being a guest host is another. And finally, if you or your company want to spot to an episode, there's a third. Thanks again and have a great morning, afternoon or evening, wherever you are.